You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. We are in uh, 2 Corinthians, um, <clears throat> the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, today's, uh, today, the way that I'm going to be unpacking this, uh, this chapter is a little bit different to the way that we have generally been moving through um, the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to start with the big overall, uh, overall big idea for what's happening here. Like if you were just to crack your Bible open to 2 Corinthians 7 and be like, what's all this about? I want to provide a helpful context and sort of give you sort of the big zoomed out picture. Um, And then we're going to zoom really far in to just one particular verse. Uh, So we're going high view and then straight down into a very narrow view. So we're going to go like, what is 2 Corinthians 7 generally speaking about? And then it's almost going to be going like a topical sermon. Uh, So you will have heard over the last few weeks how 
how I've been mentioning that 2 Corinthians is, is this pastoral epistle where, where Paul's been moving through, explaining what's been going on through the context of like the historical time that he's in. Uh, but then he keeps diving down and having this, sorry, I started saying that. He is, he is bringing up these great big theological like verses and these are like the coffee cup verses. So, like this is amazing. You know, it's like he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And you're like, whoa, that's amazing. Like, you know, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Like these are huge. They're worth an entire sermon on their own. Um, so today I still want to keep us in the chain of thought that Paul's been taking us through up to this point. But there is a verse here that I think is just really helpful for understanding the Christian life and the cycle that it involves in our sanctification or our becoming more like Jesus or our becoming holy as God is holy. Um, So we're going to lean into that today. So the big idea that we're going to be covering up front is when we're thinking about um, the general principle in confrontation and comfort. So that's sort of the big idea. And we're going to look at how the, the leadership's role to confront, the Holy Spirit's role in confrontation, and then how we are all to be people who love and obey and comfort one another. There's the big flyover. And then as we go in to look at this cycle of sanctification, specifically looking at godly grief, we're going to be thinking about past, present, and future salvation in how we are saved by the penalty power and presence of sin and how at every point in that cycle it's God's grace, God's grace, and God's grace. So that is how we're going to be moving in today's chapter. So chapter 7, Paul is largely explaining why he wrote his severe letter, his severe letter. Now, if you've been tracking along with us so far, you know that 2 Corinthians 7 is a, uh, it's, Commentators tend to think it's generally, it's actually probably better to say it's three Corinthians or four Corinthians. It's its not just the second letter in the series that he'd been writing to them. This is the story so far. Paul planted the church in Corinth and then he's been there for a few years. He's got it set up. You know, there's some elders there. It seems to be going well. Like, you know, there's, it's growing. Paul leaves. And then when Paul, after Paul has left, after some time, Paul gets a letter and it's kind of just like, hey, Paul, you know, uh, the church that you planted in Corinth, not going so great. Um, there's some stuff going on, there's a bit of argy-bargy. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians in response to what's what he's been what has been communicated to him. Um, and I think uh, the, depending on the translation of the Bible, they actually um, they make a few decisions to even give quotation marks of where they think that it's Paul re-quoting them as he responds to their um, accusations. And then Paul, after 1 Corinthians, he goes and visits the, the church in Corinth, and uh, that that he intends to do a double visit. He tends to go, like, I'm on my way to Macedonia, I'm going to go visit the church in Corinth, and then when I, I'll go up to Macedonia and then I'll come back through. The first visit is like, <laughs> doesn't go so well. Um, and he sort of actually sort of sees things that are going on at Corinth, and then there's some accusations that they get flown, uh, that fly around, and we don't exactly know what's happened, but we know it's not it's not cool. Um, and then Paul basically decides, well, I'm not going to visit them again on my way back from Macedonia. And we thought about earlier in our series that it's that was a decision out of his love for them, out of his sacrificial love. Like he had all the authority and all the clout to go back there and be like, guys, like you suck, like this is straighten this out. Like, but he doesn't. He's just like, it's going to be better just to let things go through. And instead, I'm going to write them a letter. That is what commentators generally will say is the severe letter or the harsh letter. Instead of visiting them, he writes them a letter. So, and there's some confrontation there. 
after that, um, Paul, uh, after he writes the letter, he then gets a report from Titus as to how the letter landed with them. So Titus goes and visits the guys in Corinth, and then Paul replies with this letter to Corinthians as to sort of Paul's now heard the report from Titus, how they sort of received the severe letter, and now he's just like, hey, guys, now I'm going to explain to you my ministry, the why behind it, and also to Corinthians, his intention behind the severe letter. Now, we know up to this point so far, Paul has been explaining why he's been doing what he's been doing, hasn't he? And he's just like, well, I do what I do because Jesus is, who remembers? There's no beanie in getting this one. So good. Jesus is so good. He's so good. He's so good. Jesus is Lord. This is the message that we preach. Jesus is Lord, he's master, he's king, and this is such good news because the king is kind. The king is control, he loves you, and he's for you. And this is what I just dedicate my whole life to doing, is I'm just here to, to build you up in the good news of Jesus, to point you to him, because eventually we're all going to bow down before Jesus anyway. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of God, so in the fear of the Lord, and because of our great love for you, we want to preach Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And he goes on, um, he actually finishes in, uh, he's been building up to this point. He gets to the end of halfway through chapter six. And then rather than just telling him what he's, what he's been doing, he then does it. He's just like, I implore you, be reconciled to God because it's just amazing. You know, new creation life. This is what you get. This is what Jesus offers. This is the, the wonder and the glory of the good news of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's eternal life that starts now, Corinthians. It's perishing. That means you can be not perishing now, Corinthians. You can live in this newness of life. All this is from God. And so he finishes off chapter 6 in the flow of thought, and we move now into chapter 7. And he's just been saying, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he's finishing this flow of thoughts saying, in God's eyes, Corinthians, Christian, you are in. You are good. You're in the family of God. If you, if, you, if you confess through the mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you are his. If you have a love for God, you are his. You're in his family. You're drafted onto the team. You're enlisted into his army. You are safe and secure. So good to have the affection and the affirmation of God the Father, the one who created everything in the universe. But you've still got some bad habits from your past life, okay? Still got some bad habits from your past life. So let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement and body, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You've still got some bad habits in your past life. There's still some baggage that doesn't define you, so don't let it define you. So if Jesus is your big brother, your king, your saviour, live like who you actually are in God's eyes. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And now we get to the section in 2 Corinthians 7, his intention behind this severe letter. He kicks off verses 3 and 4. Widen your hearts to receive this message and trust this invitation. Why? Verses 1 to 4, he goes on to say, because I love you guys. Like you can trust me in my harshness here. It's because I love you. It's, it's a good thing that I'm saying. I said before you, verses 3 and 4, that you are in our hearts. I have great pride in you. 
See, this is why I wrote you the severe letter. Yes, it was partly because I wanted to do the loving thing by not have to have the awkwardness of our visit for you to, you know, make that more difficult than it had to be. But it was this, he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice because you were because not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul's like, my intention for you guys is I want the best for you. I had to say a few hard words. Had to come in with this letter with a little bit of tough intervention. But what I highlighted and called out in you was because of my love for you. Like, because that is what true confrontation and intervention is, isn't it? It's not letting someone continue on into a, through a bad habit or a bad addiction. We face up to someone and we're like, guys, or friend. To not highlight this would be unloving. And then from verse 13, chapter 7 finishes with Paul speaking of Titus's work to be running around, just basically being a legend in keeping the family together. Um, he's comforting Paul and he's getting news from the Corinthian church. So that's a bit of an overview of 2 Corinthians 7. Now, it feel, feels a little bit like distant, you know, something that happened so long ago, like what's, what's all that all about? Um, Josh and I were talking about it this week, and I feel like maybe this illustration could help it land a little bit more, okay? Imagine Cedar on Hill Surf Coast is planted and they're, you know, lead pastor, Louie, you know, we're here for a few years. And then I'm just like, good work, guys. Let's go plant another church now. See you later. And then I leave and I go to Madagascar. Who knows? Um, <laughs> that's prophetic. Man, get ready. Uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I get a letter. I get an email and they're like, hey, Louie, I don't know if you've heard about that Surf Coast church, um, but they're going crazy. Uh, they're doing some crazy stuff. Um, you might want to pay him a visit. So I write him a letter and then I, and I write you guys a letter. Then I come back and then, uh, and then I come back and I'm just like, oh, guys, like, uh, this, this, good to see you again. Uh, it's been, it's, 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 this is interesting. And then there's a couple of moments where there's a couple, couple of people, choice people in the church, like they get all up in my face, like, you suck. It's just like, we like these guys better. What you did was terrible. What you are doing right now is terrible. We don't trust you. I'm like, whoa, okay, didn't expect that. So I'm just like, um, I was on my way to Melbourne and I was going to come back again, but I might just not do that. And I, then I write you guys an email. I'm like, hey, guys, just um, just want to let you know that some of those things that those people said weren't quite Christ-like. Um, <laughs> so we can sort of see what the severe letter is probably saying. And, um, and then that letter gets read out here on a Sunday and like, oh, wow, yeah, that um, Louis was onto something there. <laughs> And, uh, and then, and then, so then, you know, cause who's our basic resident encourager, just all around legend, good guy, Joash, you know, he's, uh, he's, he, he goes and he's, he's the one who he's read out the letter. And then he comes and he comes and sees me and he goes, Hey, Louie, just let you know, just how the letter landed that you read, wrote, I know you were going to visit, but you wrote the letter. It's like, man, those guys, like, it's been really encouraging. Um, there's been like a really genuine change of heart in the guys at Surf Coast, like be encouraged. And I'm like, Oh, that, that's great. And then. Um, and then Josh comes back here and he's just like, oh man, Louis loves you guys so much. Like he knows that that email he wrote was really harsh. Well, came across a bit harsh, but like he really loves you. And you're like, oh, this is awesome. You know, and then 
we're writing two Corinthians. Like, so there's this this weird interaction of like people reassuring and comfort company people, people like doing naughty things, and then does that make sense? We like kind of understanding how this is working. I mean, it, it doesn't make as much sense when it's overseas, but it could. It, this could be us. I hear that. I'm in. You should be in here. Now, <clears throat> what's the general principle that I, I want to think about in um, thinking about Paul's confrontation to the church in Corinth? It's a, it's a general principle about confrontation and comfort. Okay. Today's world is in a state that is brimming with confrontation. Now, this is what Paul had to do in his severe letter. It was, And it's obviously what the Corinthians felt in receiving this letter. But today's world today is saturated with confrontation. The, the invention of the faceless email or text message, so much easier to confront people. Social media, Facebook community notice boards, it's all about confrontation. It's all about calling people out, you know, posting weird pictures of just stuff and then people can, can confronting and complaining. It's it's too easy to let people know exactly how you feel or when you feel wronged or hard done by. It's a world we live in, isn't it? When I was saying this, was it just me? Like, do you remember what a critic used to be? Like a critic was someone that was an expert in something, like a food critic. And then they would go and they would review the restaurant or review the meal and be like, oh, yeah, I trust what that guy has to say because, like, he's a critic. He's trained and qualified. And now what's the expression? Everyone's a critic. Now everyone can give a review on Google. Now everyone can, you know, tell you how you did. Now everyone can like, you know, stay on the line and answer two short questions to let us know how your experience was. Today's world, ironically, with all of these new inventions of social media, like there's plenty of confrontation, but I don't see also a counter of increased levels of comforting though, do we? We tend to bias towards one and not the other. I think it's reflective in the words of 2 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, who is one of the young junior leaders in the church, he says, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I feel like that's a pretty good, accurate summary of our culture today. Everyone seems to be a critic. But what do we see in 2 Corinthians 7 here? What is being modelled as a general principle as Paul writes into this church after what was, we don't exactly know, but we can pretty well surmise that was a hard experience. You have to say some hard things. Well, Paul models to us what right confrontation and what right criticism looks like. It's loving. It's God-honoring. And it's from a position of leadership. We've already thought about in past sermons how Paul writes his letter from a posture of sacrificial love. And we have already seen how God, uh, Paul's letter is, is from a posture of wanting to honour God. His words for them were to cast off worldliness and to put on Christ-likeness. Paul is not about 
bolstering up his agenda or his persona or his reputation as an apostle. He didn't care. People thought about him. He's like, it's like to live is Christ. To die is gain. He's just like, I do it all for Jesus. And it's also from a position of leadership. See, I think one thing that 2 Corinthians 7 models for us in matters regarding the holy conduct of the people of the church, it's the leadership of the church that has a significant responsibility to call and to call out and confront people in those matters. <clears throat> now, sometimes this is broadly speaking. Um, if any of you were here last week, we preached, we were talking about 2 Corinthians 6, and we're thinking about some of the things that we could be unequally yoked to. Who remembers that? Those are some awkward points in that sermon that was just like, oh, yeah, maybe that's me unequally yoked to that thing. Now, that's like a broadly speaking calling some things out that, you know, when it comes up in the, in the scripture, it's the pastor's responsibility. Like, well, we're talking about this today. All right. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but that's generally, generally assumed that there's a, there's, a, there's a pastoral responsibility to be doing that, isn't there? Because it would be very different if there was just like a couple of people peppered around the church, where it's just like all that they decided to do was like, and I think you're unequally yoked to this and you're unequally yoked to this. And like, and this is like, that's a bit, that's a bit callous. It's like a little, it's just like, what's going on here? So that's broadly speaking. But then sometimes it's in very specific things that on the evidence and testimony of two to three witnesses, those entrust, with entrusted leadership in the church are to be seeing people through a process of seeing sin, grieving sin, repenting and confession of sin, and then loving those people, showing grace and leading them in restoration. That coming down to those that God has placed in leadership in his church. Now, obviously, this is not for every single issue. <laughs> Jesus says in Matthew 18, he says, if, if anyone, if your brother sins against, sins against you, like, have a chat to him, you know? Have, you know, have a chat to him or her. A brother or sister sins against you. You know, it's just like you can restore one another in that. Like that's what the gospel is all about. It's just like we can forgive one another because God has forgiven us. So it's not in every issue that, you know, it's just like, oh, I better run to the pastor. Let him sort this out. Like we're all, you know, adults. But there is certainly for the serious issues. There's a weight that lands on the leadership of the church as it did for Paul in this scenario where he had to call out many of those in Corinth. Paul writes in Galatians 6, the public calling out of some pretty significant things that weren't going well. Now, we're thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is a bit of, this is a bit weird, you know, talking about like the leadership structures within the church, like, is this, what we're, is, this, is, this is this what, how we're spending our Monday morning, our Sunday morning, say, the, boom. But this isn't just a church order principle that we just want to think about today. It's this is this is this the world borrows this God logic all the time. The world borrows this God logic all the time. Those of you that are in the workplace, those of you in the workplace, now here's a question. Are you expected to call out and deal with every single insubordination that happens at every moment? N no, I, I hope you don't. Uh, <laughs> Like there's, there's right channels in the workplace, there's right people, and there's right processes for confrontation and criticism in the workplace, isn't there? 
So isn't it interesting when the logic of God is unseemingly always at work in non-Christian society? So, but there's an implication to this. Are you a boss? Are you an employer? Are you responsible for people? I pray that you would get your example from biblical leadership and how it's modeled to us in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that your confrontation and criticism would be loving, God-honoring, and from the right position and with the right motives. That's like workplaces, a little bit closer to home. What about families? Most of us have had a pretty, you know, most of us have been a fairly typical family. Now in the family, are the children, are they the ones expected to call out and deal with every single act of disobedience that happens? Is that the kid's role? Got to say, as a parent, it's like the most frustrating thing when like your kids are just like trying to be the parents. (laughs) Anyone else know that pain? No, just me. All right. No, there's right channels. There's right processes. There's, there's, there's the right opportunities and ways of confrontation and criticism, isn't there? And so here I would say here's a call to fathers. In the home, God has given you the responsibility to be the ones to model and make sure that there is a safe and secure environment for your family to flourish. that in the hard conversations of perhaps the confrontation of children, that the head of the home is doing the right thing to stick up for the other kids and to stick up for his wife and making sure that she is respected as the mum in the home as well. It's not just a church order principle. The world borrows from this God logic all the time. Now, at this point, maybe you're thinking, Okay, is Louis saying that I shouldn't say stuff to people when you know I'm seeing stuff or when something bad happens to me, I just should be quiet about it all the time? I just have to be quiet and not say anything? Just too scared to say anything? If I don't say anything, who will? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Different personalities in the room. Some people will lean into confrontation, confrontation. some people will back away from confrontation. You're someone that is a lean into confrontation and you want to just like, rhino storm that thing and make sure it's sorted out before you go to bed tonight. I would suggest before you speak to people about it, speak to God about it. Before you speak to the person, speak to the person of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged. So often we can be wronged or we can feel like someone's not, you know, playing the game that they're supposed to play and they're not doing the right thing and we can be like so quick to be like to chat to someone else about that person or to march up to that person and be like, do you really think that your behaviour is in keeping with Christ-likeness? I've been in those churches before. 
How often are we actually going to the Holy Spirit and letting him do some hard heart work in the people that we would have concern for? I know I heard a great story of, um, uh, it's not my story, uh, Jeff Vanderselt tells this. Um, I have my own stories, but this one I think is just tells it better. Uh, there was a guy that was a part of their church. He'd recently become a Christian, and then as a thing, they all went to a music festival together. And at this music festival, uh, let's, for the sake of the story, the bloke that became a Christian, his name, I don't know, Chad. Let's call him Chad. And at the music festival, he was just like, it's music festival, Chad, today. Woohoo! And basically, he's just doing everything that normally would happen at a music festival, which um, we know what that is. <laughs> it's not stuff that you would do at church or stuff that honors Jesus. <laughs> now, on the drive home in the car, uh, Chad was um, asleep. Let's say asleep in the back of the car, and then, you know, this, they're driving and the pastor's driving the car and someone sitting next to him is just like, hey, we should really chat to Chad about his behaviour back there. Are we going to confront him? Are we going to, like, call him out on this? And uh, Jeff, who's driving the car, is just like, well, actually, I think maybe first, let's, why don't we just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do some work in Chad's heart? And the guy sitting next to the pastor's car is just like, really? Like, Okay, I guess. Like, is that going to work? It's just like, oh, man, like, how did you even become a Christian? Like, it's just like the Holy Spirit did some work in your heart. Anyway, we sometimes we don't draw the logic all the way through, do we? But it was only a matter of weeks, and, um, and I, think, I think the story goes that they were going to be playing, um, playing cards at their place, and they had a couple of drinks together, you know, just friendly drinks, not getting drunk or anything like that. And Chad was just like, oh, mate, not for me, not for me at the offer of having any drinks. It's like, oh, mate, what's going on? It's just like, mate, I've, I've done some really hard thinking and I think that actually I just need to make sure that this is completely sorted out and I've got to just make sure I give this to God for a while until I can live appropriately. And who had done that work? Was it the people that, you know, knew better and, you know, were ready to march up to this guy and confront him? No, it's just like, let's pray for him and let's be patient and let's see what the Holy Spirit wants to do in this guy's heart as he continues to be walked with by a loving church family who recognize that none of us have it together. <laughs> Just letting the God of all comfort comfort us in our affliction. Now, that's a, that's a lot of big, broad overview, isn't it? Thinking about confrontation in the church, confrontation and comfort. Why go into this much stuff? Maybe you're just like, look, I don't really mind. Look, if the pastors want to be the ones to deal with all of this stuff, fine. I don't mind. I'll just keep doing my thing. Um, here's where I want to land on this point. The church is a family. And the church has Paul, who's acting here with pastoral oversight. He's been called by God to lead, teach, direct. He's planted the church. He has ongoing responsibility for the church. We also have those with delegated authority to be encouragers and to build people up and to, to be helpful to Paul and helpful to the church. Someone like Titus, he's present, he's connected, he's listening, he's sharing stories of God's goodness at work. He's reassuring, he's affectionate, he's loving people, he's for the people, he's a trusted advisor. And then you've got everyone else in the church family. The rest of the church, we read in that passage, they are obedient, they are respectful, uh, they are honouring and, and they are honouring intentionally living their lives out in the love and fear of God. Now, stepping back for a moment, when you can sort of recognise that there's these God-given roles for people to operate in, that all his people are equal, 
that all these people are together and they're all on the same mission, but all don't have to do everything. Not everyone has to do everything. What does that do? It should be life-giving, shouldn't it? It's like, wow, I don't have to do everything. Like there's like, if I'm in the army, if I'm in an army, I don't have to be on the front line and cooking the meals and putting up the tents and driving the truck. Like I can just specialize in my particular area. <laughs> I don't have to do everything. And so if you're looking for, if you're reading through 2 Corinthians 7, you're like, well, what is my job here? What is my job? Well, baseline job for all of us is be a contributing member of the family who comforts the rest of the family. Like we all show up. And we all are seeking to obey God and we're all seeking to be respectful of others and we're all seeking to intentionally live in the love and fear of God. Instead of being known as a bunch of confronters, it's like we can leave that to those guys over there, trust that they can do that and we'll help them as much as we can and we'll pray for them, we'll pray for the Holy Spirit. Instead of being a bunch of confronters, we can be known as a people who are comforters. Like imagine if our imagine what our legacy could be as a church if we got shut down. Like what would be our legacy? Wouldn't it be amazing to hear stories of like, you know, oh, did you hear about that church that was like always comforting people that recently got shut down? Did you hear about that church that was like outright ongoing sacrificial love all the time? Did you hear about that church? Like, oh, you mean like that outdoor one? Oh, I don't know how they met together. I don't know what they did on a Sunday, but all I knew, all I knew and heard about was just how they just loved one another in their local community. What if we were a church full of comforters, simply obeying the words and instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ, love God, love one another, instead of rushing off into the nitty-picky little detailed bits of like, how do I confront that person? I don't know if that's landing or not. I hope so. I wonder who you can comfort today. That's our big, broad principle so we can look at in Chapter 7. Now I want to deep dive as I cl to close on verse 10 mini topical sermon here on sanctification from verse 9 as it is i rejoice not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death Paul's now talking to Paul here is leveraging off the, the guilt and the grief that they felt from being confronted. Okay, they'd done some things that were not in keeping with living like a person that is bearing the name of Christ. And Paul called it out and they're like, whoa, I see that. And they had, Paul is thrilled because he's heard from Titus that they've had a godly grief, which has Produced in, their, produced in their repentance leading to salvation. It wasn't a worldly grief. They were suffering, suffering the right kind of grief. 
So what is godly grief? Look at the passage. It produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret. It produces repentance and leads to salvation. It is the sorrow God wants his people, what God wants, sorry, it is the sorrow God wants and make his people decide to change their lives. It leads them to salvation. It, godly grief drives us to God. Godly grief turns us back around into the way of salvation and we never regret that type of pain. What is worldly grief? Worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is a kind of sorrow that will bring death. Worldly grief is a distress that drives you away from God and it's full of regrets and it ends up on the deathbed of regrets. See, godly grief is a sorrow or remorse that comes from a genuine recognition of your sin. That's what Paul was calling out in the Corinthians. It was it's like, guys, like that's, that, that's sin. <clears throat> a genuine recognition of sin, it's a sorrow that leads to a repentance and a desire to turn away from that sin. That's what repentance is. It's t- t- repentance is turning around. It's going in the different direction. It's just like if you've got a, a nav man in your car, you're driving around and you've gone past your destination, the little voice should say, you have passed your destination. You need to repent. You need to turn around. Change the way that you're going. Godly grief is a genuine seeking of God's forgiveness. It's to make amends and commit to living an honest life going forwards. See, an example of godly grief. Imagine a person who realizes that they have been dishonest in their business dealings. They realize that. But then they feel the Holy Spirit works on their heart. They feel a deep sorrow and regret for their actions, not only because it caused harm to others, but because it goes against what God says is right and good. And they genuinely seek God's forgiveness. They make amends and they commit to to living a new and honest life going forward. That would be godly grief as an example in dishonest business. Pushes people back to God. What about worldly grief? Worldly grief, it's a sorrow that primarily is focused on the consequences or the negative outcomes for actions without genuine repentance or a desire for spiritual growth. It is a temporary and superficial sorrow that lacks lacks any transformation or turning to God. That's worldly grief. Like imagine a person engages in some illegal activities, they get caught, leads to legal troubles and negative consequences on their life. And they may feel sorrow, regret, and grief, but their focus isn't on the on the consequences of what it does between their, them and their relationship with God. Their grief is just on the pain that they feel, on what they miss out on. And then when the trouble subsides, they just go back to doing whatever they're doing. There's been no heart change. There's been no, I'm sorry, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. Godly grief is a sorrow that leads to repentance, transformation, and reconciliation with God, while worldly grief is temporary and superficial, and it lacks true repentance. It lacks spiritual growth. Now, there's a whole lot that could be said about worldly grief. (laughs) 
I suspect there's a lot of people that use God to feel better about their worldly grief, but that's another sermon for another time. I want to look at godly grief and encourage us in the experience of what it means to be suffering the blessing of godly grief, for it is the cycle of the Christian life. Now, there are different types of grief, right? Different types of grief. We can grieve when we lose a, lose, lose a loved one. There's all sorts of grief. But a godly grief is when we recognize our sin in our life and we go, whoa, that's not good. And then we realize the only way that that is going anywhere is if we see it on put to death on the cross of Jesus Christ and then we are so thankful for God for the gift, for the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus for that sin that we committed. And that leads to our salvation without regret. Godly grief is how we all became Christians. Godly grief is how you will become a Christian if you're not a Christian here today. Godly grief is what the first step to being saved from the penalty of sin. Because what is the story of the Christian? It is at some point God put his finger on your heart and he opened your eyes and you were like, whoa. I am a sinner. Whoa. I have dishonored and rebelled against the most holy God. Whoa. I am a creature of wrath. Whoa, there's nothing I can do to be safe on the final judgment day of God because I am not holy as God has called me to be holy. Whoa, I am stuffed. I feel real bad. I have a godly grief. I'm grieving my sin. And godly grief will push you towards God, won't it? Because in that godly grief, there's a simultaneous action that God has as he opens our eyes to our sin. He also shines in the light of Christ, doesn't he? As we see our muck, we're like, oh, we then look up and it's just like, whoa, that's the light that's shining so I can see my muck, the light of Jesus. And we hear the invitation from God. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We hear the words of Jesus. It says the son, if you look to the son who was lifted up, you'll be forgiven. If anyone, if anyone, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse you from all sin and unrighteousness. So that godly grief at the beginning of our Christian life is just like, oh, I can't save myself. So we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and we say, God, save me, help me. I cannot save myself. It has to be by your grace alone, through my faith alone. And what does that do as we throw ourselves upon the love and the mercy of God? It leads to what? Salvation without regret. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you, if you confess through the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has risen him from the dead, you will be saved. You are justified, stamped. Sealed, approved. God's like, you You are now saved from the penalty of sin. Past. You are saved from the penalty of sin. It's done. 
There's the past, past salvation that you have in Jesus. That's what godly grief has done to you. Have you, have you felt that, Christian? Have you felt that? Have you known that experience, this simultaneous grief and joy at the same time that has brought you to God, the Holy Spirit opening up your eyes? Saved from the penalty of sin. And then guess what? Do we never have that again? No. It keeps happening over and over and over and over and over and over all through the Christian life until we get to see Jesus in the face because there is there is the end moment of our salvation, which is we are saved from the presence of sin. That's our future salvation. That is when Jesus returns. That is when we are born again into our resurrected bodies and we're with Jesus face to face in the new heavens, the new earth, the holy city, amazing, no more sin ever. Can you imagine like your thoughts being completely sinless, like never having anything that like, inject there that you have to like catch out and be like, where did that come from? You know, never having anyone just like do anything against you or against your loved ones that involves any sin. What a glorious thought, just being with God, just seeing him in his perfect beauty and light, amazing. That's our future salvation. But then we have this cycle, which is saved from the power of sin in the present. And that is where godly grief will keep going over and over and over and over. Because what would happen if all of your sin got exposed to you on the first day of your salvation all in one hit? How do you reckon you would go? How do you reckon you'd hold up emotionally and intellectually? We'd all die. I would die. I would die. Just like God be like, all right, Louis, here's all your sin. Boom. Oh, just the one book? No, no, no. There's like 16 libraries back there. The semi, and there's a line of semi trailers still to come. And I want you to start working on that. Um, you know, bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. What? <laughs> he doesn't do that to us. Jesus, he's so kind. He's just like, all right, all right, let's just deal with some of this big stuff first. And then it's just like, okay, we're walking with Jesus. It's just like, you know, baby starts crawling and then we start walking and then there's like this new thing to start doing. You're like, oh, okay. Oh, man, godly grief again for that thing. Man, there's anger in there that I didn't realize that I had. Man, I'm not happy about that. But thank you, God, for showing that to me. I turn to you and I need your help, Holy Spirit, be at work in me to put this to death because I don't want that. That's not of Jesus. I don't want that in my life. So please renew me, make me whole. Lead me in salvation because I know I won't regret looking more like Jesus at the end of the day. And then we walk a little bit further, keep walking, keep growing. And then, oh, man, more godly grief. Like God pooh, brings that one to pride. You know there's pride there, mate. Like, oh, I do now. Now, why do I want to say all of that? Because I want to reassure you because there'll be times where the enemy, the accuser will get in and be like, you're not a Christian because you're still doing that stuff. call yourself a Christian, doing all that stuff over there, thinking that way, behaving in that way, spending your money in that way. You're not a real Christian. Don't let the enemy take hold of your godly grief, which is to produce repentance in you and lead you to salvation without regret. When you begin to feel that thing in your heart, which is this is not of God, this is not the family I'm in. This is not my identity. This is not the team I now play for. Let it lead you to repentance. 
turning from that thing, begging for the grace of God to put that thing to death as well. And so you can continue to walk in salvation. As Paul wrote, finishes off to the Corinthian church in the last chapter of his first letter, he says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, the will of God for you is your sanctification. God's will for you, the plan for your life is for you to become more and more like Jesus. And that's a journey. That's a process. That's a path you've got to walk with Jesus. It's it's relational, and we do that in this life now. So we have all these opportunities to keep telling other people about Jesus along the road. And the whole way through, if you're reading your Bible, you come through come across this stuff all the time. These moments of just like, oh man, there's another another thing that's going to produce in me repentance and lead me to salvation. Paul writes to the Colossians, put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and after the image of its creator. Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Peter writes, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grow. So godly grief, expect it. It'll keep coming. Sometimes it may come from the leadership of the church, as it did for the Corinthians. But most of the time, it'll just come as you are faithful in seeking to water the soil, read your Bible, Pray and meet with fellow believers. And as you look to Jesus, as you behold his glory, and you'll be conformed from one degree of glory to another. I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, I'm going to leave a moment for you to think about perhaps what is your current godly grief? And I want to give you an opportunity to ask God that it would lead you to repentance. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.